Good morning, good evening, hello. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and founder of Manage Flitter. It is Friday, the 21st of October, 2016. Kate, we are nearly at the end of 2016. Pretty scary. <laughs> pretty scary. And yeah. you'll notice you're still pretty young, but as you get older, time just speeds up and it's, um, it's, it's, it's a, a really crazy sensation. Anyway, you're listening to episode number 65 of the It's a Monkey podcast. Um, thank you for joining us. We have a terrific show lined up for you. Um, later on in the show, we will play an interview with Tim Lee, who is the author of a book um, on the blockchain called Down the Rabbit Hole. And I spoke to Tim about everything blockchain. He, Tim is also the CEO and co-founder of Veridictum and a blockchain evangelist. And we had a really interesting chat about the blockchain. If you've always been curious about the blockchain and um, what it actually is, we try to really distill it down. I wanted to really bring it back to first principles and pare it down so that um, um, it's one of these concepts that people I think are afraid to admit that they don't know much about. I know that I still struggle to get my head around certain concepts around the blockchain and Bitcoin. Um, so we, that's coming up later on in the show. As usual, um, we are going to chat about um, um, some news this week. But before we get into that, um, I just want to um, mention some of the shout outs. I got an email from uh, Willem van Zeil in South Africa. Um, he emailed us and said, great to see that the podcast is back up and running and that he enjoys listening to it. He um, has a website of um, pronotbusies.com, which I think is for productivenotbusy.com. So pronotbusy.com, check it out. Um, Willem, thanks very much. We uh, appreciate the note. Um, I also got an, an, an audio note from the CEO of an app called Goalify, Michael Winterheller. And uh, he sent through a, a note uh, saying that he enjoys the podcast and uh, telling us a little bit about his app. So we're just going to play that um, quickly. Hi, Monkey Podcast team. I enjoy listening to your show, so I thought I would drop you a note about our product as your listeners may be interested. I'm Michael, founder of the popular productivity app Goalify. I created Goalify because I noticed how often people fail in reaching their goals simply because they do not follow up with their goals in a consistent and successful effort. My colleagues and I believe that success is not one giant leap, but rather the continuous realization of many small, consistently taken steps. And this is where Goalify fits in so perfectly. Goalify is an easy and fun to use mobile app helping you to work on your goals and habits on a consistent basis. Goalify makes sure that you will reach what you have envisioned, all while integrating in your daily life flow in the most efficient and convenient way. I personally use our app every day to boost my productivity. Thanks again for the great podcasts and best wishes from Austria. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or by visiting goalifyapp.com. So that was... Um Michael Winterheller, who's the CEO of Goalify. If you want to send through a shout out on audio, we'd love to play it for you or drop us an email, podcastedittermonkey.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're excited that this podcast is back up and running. Every two weeks, we'll try to keep to schedule. Um, we may miss a, a few here or there, but um, try keep an eye out on your podcast list every two weeks or so. And back in the studio with me, is the one, the only, Kate Frappel, double pell, double pell, double, <laughs> double P, pell. double P, double L. Kate, thank you for joining me. 
Thanks for having me again. What does it feel like to be on your, your podcast number two? Uh, still pretty nerve-wracking, yeah, but you, not quite as bad as the first time. Did you get a flood of Twitter followers? Uh, no. No. <laughs> if you're listening, follow Kate on Twitter, <laughs> at Kate Frappel. Um, yes. And Kate is a design lead at Manage Flitter. She's involved with our brand new spanking product, Manage Social, and everything around that. Um, Kate, what's been happening in the news this week? So Facebook have recently done like a conference um, and had like a virtual reality session with the Oculus. So this is the Oculus product that Facebook bought a few years ago, which is their virtual reality product. Yep, exactly. And so at the moment, it's very much sort of targeted as a game. Um, But as you can see in the video, uh, they can actually bring in avatars. And so it's a new experience of hanging out with your friends in the digital realm. I had a look, I watched this video in its entirety. We'll, we'll link to it on the show notes. Um, I really encourage you to, um, dear listener, to listen, to watch it. Really fantastic. It's really come a long way. Mark Zuckerberg pops into this virtual world with a couple of his colleagues. They change the environments from the Facebook offices to under the ocean to Mars. They even then patch in a call from Mark's wife, Priscilla Chan, into the virtual reality world. And they chat to her and she can see them in there. Um, I mean, the, the, um, the opportunities are endless. Uh, you, you, the mind just boggles in terms of uh, how this can be implied. And just forget about social events or games or the novelty factor. But in terms of um, training and learning, wow. And creating a new space. Yeah. I quite um, liked as well they took a selfie. They can, they can bring in objects. Um, I don't really know how it works, but they materialize objects in that realm and then they can take selfies of their avatars. And they can create these objects in the realm, in, yeah. in the virtual reality realm as well. So mm. it's really, really right on our doorstep, virtual reality. And I think in terms of training, it's going to be absolutely huge. You can imagine if you're a paramedic or a doctor or a teacher or anything like that. I mean, the simulation type effects will be um, mm. fantastic um, and of course with travel and just just you know gaming and it's all yeah. it's, it's, it's really a wave that's about to sort of crash crash down on us. I recall recently I went to a uh, travel expo uh, and I was at the Kentucky stand and they had these uh, I think they were Samsung but similar idea these sort of goggles and they put headphones on you as well and took you to these sort of destinations that Kentucky travel to. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the ones I went to was Machu Picchu. And no joke, I'm sitting on this stool and you look down, it's all 360 and it was as if I was sitting on some cliff top. It's and really fantastic. And you look up yeah. and you see the sky. and Exactly. You, yeah. Did you get motion sick? Not so much motion sickness, but this feeling of um, not being on the stool, if that makes sense. Like I actually felt like I was gonna fall off the cliff if I leaned over any further. It just shows you the the brain, you know, the brain is this wonderfully um, powerful, but in a way um, linear, Mm. you you know, inputs you, you can trick it relatively easily, right? You you trick it and it takes you there. Yeah, I wonder as well the, down the track, like the ramifications of that, you know, like psychologically, where do you draw the line between 
reality and virtual reality. I think it is going to become really, really blurred. And I think it's going to be, and I think a lot of other things are going to become really blurred. We're not going to tell who amongst us are robots and not as well. It's also going to become really, really blurred until someone stops working in the middle of the day and they need to be plugged in. Um, So there's going to be, you know, the singularity they talk about where where, where people and machines sort of become one and everything becomes blurred. But Mm -hmm. um, this is... It's also just altering our sense of fear. So if you're in a game and it's so lifelike that, you know, you can shoot and and fall over and stuff, but you don't get hurt. And then if you can't tell the difference between the game and the real life, then your inhibitions had just shrunk dramatically. And you end up hurting yourself in the real world. Very, very interesting. I mean, there's, I think there would be a great movie in something like that. You know, when, when can you tell you in the real world? When can you tell you in the virtual world? Does it make a difference? Um, you know, there's a, there's a famous book I might have mentioned before in the podcast called Neuromancer, which is where the word cyberspace was actually coined. This book came out mm-hmm. in 1984. So even pre-internet, yeah. and it's a it's it's a great um, social statement on what society is going to be like at that that stage. Very famous book, Neuromancer by William Gibson. I'll have to check it out. Um, check it out. Um, yeah. And he, he he was quite on the money in terms of um, you know he paints a world where that's very emotionless, where it's very flat because people can create any experience that they want. So um, they become so. Um, um, so f- so the adrenaline sort of wears out because they've had all these experiences you know anyway mm-hmm. it's, it's it's an interesting book have a, have a read it's quite an easy read a little bit of a little bit of a science fiction okay. very much a science fiction style book but um, be interesting that uh, sounds pretty good it, it's it's uh, certainly certainly gets you thinking about some of the the worlds that we can create um what else is happening snapchat announced that um and they're going to get into the the sunglass game with what snapchat spectacles spectacles they're called yeah yeah they're sort of i guess they're trying to get into the google glass but without going the whole distance so at the moment it's marketed more as a toy plastic glossy colorful toy that interacts with your Snapchat um, and records 10 second videos from or directly from your perspective. When you push a button on the on the glasses. On the glass glasses. Mm. And a big, big difference between Google Glass and Snapchat um, spectacles is Google Glasses I think were about fifteen hundred dollars or yeah. something and, and these, these are about hundred and thirty. Yeah huge, huge difference. I think it's really smart move. I mean Snapchat mm. seemed to have gotten this um, gimmick effect novelty of um sort of wave you know with their different lenses and filters and they and and now to create yet another novelty um around this i think is pretty clever yeah well well they know it as well they know that a huge part of their target market are teenagers and that they can anything glossy and fun and, and plastic and and short and quick is going to appeal to them and um of course snapchat announced um, well, they didn't announce, but there's implications that they're going to list next year oh, okay. um, for a $25 billion listing, which is going to wow. be a big deal as well. Um, so they did just change their name to Snap Inc., I think. Yeah, I believe so. That's, so it's in, in preparation. They obviously, do, you know, mm. doing... Um, do, you, do you see ads on Snapchat? I've recently started seeing okay. them, yeah. 
So the, one of the new updates tells me if you're watching Snapchat stories, everyone's story just blends in together. So right. as soon as one finishes, another one starts. And often I'll just find an ad somewhere in the middle of all that. Right. Okay, interesting. I've tried to start using Snapchat a bit more. I have a few um, friends on there that, that put some of those stories together regularly. But um, I'm trying to get a sense of it. But mm. I, 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 it doesn't draw me in as much as Twitter Mm. You can get quite clever with it. I think um, my brother is actually in the US at the moment and he's been going through different museums in New York um, and I've had to laugh at some of his snaps. He's sort of taken certain statues and, and captioned it with something witty, you know, or you can add in little filters or stickers over the top that change the context of the photo. So in that sense, you could get a lot of popularity because it's amusing. Right. So it's, it's more entertaining in a yes. way. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. I mean, I think there's only he so much headspace to go around for a social media network. I don't know anyone that sort of really focuses on all of them. You know, you sort of got to mm. pick your pick your, pick your battles, <laughs> pick your medium, pardon the pun, and and uh, and go for that. Speaking of medium, if you missed our podcast two weeks ago, John Westenberg, fantastic writer, great thinker. We interviewed him on um, the podcast in the most previous edition. So uh, have a listen to that. Um, you're listening to Kevin Garber and Kate Frappel. We work at Manage Flitter. We put together a podcast um, every couple of weeks. You can follow um, the podcast account at Monkey Podcast or on Facebook at Monkey Podcast. You can also email us, podcast at itsamonkey.com. Rate us on iTunes. That really helps us a lot. You can also, there were some comments that were flying around on, on the site last show about Allo. We spoke about the Google um, the messaging new app. Google messaging app and um, there were a few comments about the privacy around that so if you go to itsamonkey.com you can comment about these stories and we love to engage with you about comments so we're going to take a short break now and when we come back we're going to have uh, the interview that I did with Tim Lee everything blockchain so stay with us hi my name is Dave Zarati and I'm the customer support specialist here at Manage Flitter Manage Flitter is a tool that helps you work faster and smarter on Twitter with Manage Flitter, you can clean up and grow your Twitter account. You will also get access to useful Twitter analytics, social content scheduling, and much more. Go to manageflitter.com and start your free trial today. You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything relating to the tech economy, um, the tech industry, and something that I'm particularly fascinated about. It's still a, a bit of an enigmatic type of technology, but um, been around for a little while. Um, Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, it's been uh, getting momentum over the last couple of years, and industry heavyweights such as Mark Andreessen have been saying, watch this technology, watch this space, um, uh, keep an eye on blockchain. It's going to revolutionize the world um, as much as the internet has. So I've been wanting to interview an expert on the blockchain and I found, um, I found someone right in the back door of Sydney. We're right on our doorstep, which is great. Um, and in our studio, quote unquote, I'd like to welcome Tim Lee, who is the CEO and founder of Veridictum and a blockchain evangelist and in fact is publishing an entire book on the blockchain called Down the Rabbit Hole, which is going to be released on November the 17th. Tim, thanks so much for joining us in our studio in Sydney. Thanks, Kevin. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Let's go right back because I think people, blockchain is one of the technologies where people are scared to admit they don't understand what it is. So they nervously just, you know, mumble around it or chat around it. And I think a lot of people don't, don't understand um, at all. 
um, how it came about, what it's supposed to achieve, and why why there is buzz around it. But let's let's keep it simple and let's go to first principles. Explain to me as if I was a, a, a six-year-old. What is blockchain? Let's go for it. As a six-year-old, it becomes very interesting. I mean. Uh, just to give you a little bit of background, I mean, I went to the blockchain workshops in Sydney back in December last year, and I actually definitively tried to get from people there, describe the blockchain in five words. And I couldn't get it. I mean, it was distributed ledger technology, it was crypto 2.0, banking 2.0, it was a whole variety of dis geeky dis stuff. Distributed system of trust is one that I've heard as oh, closest. Oh, there's, 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 there's a load of, I mean, the one that's favored in the financial services is distributed ledger technology, but uh -huh. it means nothing. I mean, if you remember back to the, uh, back to the internet, and I'm old enough and ugly enough to remember the internet when it first came around, and Al Gore first said it was the information superhighway. Everybody kind of got it. You knew what it was about. But when it comes to blockchain, describing it in five words is almost impossible. Um, and that's the challenge for it in terms of people understanding it. So with the six-year-old interpretation, this is something that I've, when I've done various presentations on, on the blockchain, I try and use this as an example. I think the best thing to sort of say is if, I mean, across the desk from me here is, uh, is Kev's really nice phone. And I'm going to steal that phone because uh, I really want to. Um, now, if I actually did steal Kevin's phone and we had to establish the truth, we'd go to a court of law. And the judge would say, Tim, you stole Kevin's phone. Uh, you know, here's the sentence. And I'd dispute it and away we go. We'd have, there'd be an argy-bargy about the establishment of the truth. But if we look at a situation where, for example, if we imagine that there are 5,000 independent photographers that actually take a picture of me stealing Kevin's phone, because Kevin does such a great thing with the It's a Monkey podcast, obviously the paparazzi are chasing him all over the place. Now, imagine those 5,000 independent photogra uh, photographers have taken the photograph of me stealing um, Kevin's phone. It then becomes almost incontrovertible proof that I stole Kevin's phone. And if I wanted to change the facts, I'd have to actually persuade two and a half thousand and one of those photographers to alter the image and have maybe, I don't know, have uh, Tony Abbott uh, as a picture, you know, photoshopped, uh, stealing the phone. And then we could say maybe Tony Abbott stole the phone. Now, the reality is that's a very, very hard thing to do to persuade two and a half thousand people to change the images. So let's now imagine that uh, those two and a half thousand images have to be changed in 10 minutes. Because once, uh, uh, at the end of that 10 minutes, all those photographs that have been taken of me taking Kevin's phone are going to be locked in a bank vault, which is permanently sealed with a lock on it that's got more, grain, more, um, com uh, more combinations than there are grains of sand on the planet. And then let's imagine it's going to be permanently locked. And then... Imagine that we've got a camera looking in and we can see all of those 5,000 photographs that confirm that I stole Kevin's phone. That's pretty incontrovertible and transparent proof that I stole your phone. Now, that is actually how the blockchain works. And instead of thinking of the photographers and the image of me stealing your phone, think of independent computers all around the world. And instead of thinking of the photographic image, you think of data that is actually available. And the idea is that data is stored uh, 
uh, is stored on all of those 5,000 independent computers. And the idea is there's no one central point of attack. Um, and the information is permanently available on each of those 5,000 individual computers. So if you think of the idea of the photographers, it gives you a very top-level idea of how the blockchain works. Um, in terms of it is essentially a peer-to-peer -peer database that is immutable. In other words, you'll, you'll hear the word immutable talked about a lot in the blockchain space, and immutable means it cannot be altered. Now, of course, we have a world filled with middlemen, middle people, clearing houses because this problem is such a big problem, right? Uh, um, I mean, courts unto themselves, I mean, you've given that example, they're essentially a clearinghouse of justice. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and uh, am I correct in saying, is that, is that why the blockchain is uh, um, anticipated that the impact is gonna be so high because all aspects of society where there is a clearinghouse per se, the blockchain can remove the friction around that. Essentially, you're right, and I think the, the best way of describing it is that it can actually take away trust. That's one of the key things which, uh, which, it, which it does. It enables, technically, the disintermediation of trust. You can strip out trust. So, for example, if we use a, a very simple example, I mean, I'm from the UK, uh, and I sold a property to fund this, this business that we're involved with right, right now. Now, the issue that we actually have is when I transfer money from the UK via the banking system, for example, the banks, bless their cotton socks, charge me 50 bucks for the privilege. It takes three days to get here, and they give me an exchange rate that's between 25 and 4% below market rate. If one looked at Bitcoin, for example, or another cryptocurrency, you can transfer internationally so that the funds are cleared with Bitcoin in an hour, and it costs you between two and five cents. Now, the power of that, obviously from a financial point of view, is very, very good, but what it's actually doing is it's stripping out all the intermediary banks that need to be in the chain so that we can actually transfer money from, say, HSBC in London to uh, you know, the, uh, what is known as a counterparty bank internationally, and then those funds are then, you know, here in Australia, and then those funds are then transferred transferred locally. But the it's all this these middle layers that are in the middle that just by enabling the technology to go from one party to another in and, and getting funds cleared internationally in, in less than an hour is incredibly powerful. And we're seeing use cases coming through in the financial services sector where there was a, a transaction that went from Canada to France and was cleared in less than 20 minutes. The, the NAB here locally in Australia transferred $10, I think, and it cleared within an hour internationally. I mean, it's dramatic changes that are going on, and the banks recognize they're being disrupted and are actually embracing the technology because they recognize if they don't, they're going to be out of business. I want to get back to the banks in a moment, but before that, um, I just want to um, talk about Bitcoin's relationship to the blockchain. So, the, so am I correct in saying that the Bitcoin is a particular um, use case of the blockchain? Absolutely. And, and I think there's, I think there's been a lot of confusion where um, you know blockchain is is a platform, whereas Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. Yes, I mean the blockchain is the technology that underpins Bitcoin. That's the the best way of saying it. And if you th if you compare it to 
um, the internet back in 1995. I mean, I got involved in the internet back in, in February 1995. Um, and at that stage, email was the first use case. And there was this thing called TCP IP, was the technology underneath. With the Bitcoin and blockchain, Bitcoin is the first use case and blockchain is the underlying technology. So it's that sort of parallel. So could you parallel that as uh, blockchain being TCP IP and, and Bitcoin being email or World Wide Web or FTP or something like that? Yeah, it was e- yeah, Bitcoin would have been email because that was the first real use case when you had, you know, sort of the likes of Hotmail first set up in 1995 and those types of things. I mean, email was the first was the first uh, technology that really disintermediated the, I mean, disintermediated the post office. I mean, that's, you know, the post office has suffered ever since, for example, you know, worldwide. Um, so it, it's very similar in terms of the underlying technology and the first use case. So why are the banks, um, I mean, are the banks reluctantly getting involved? Are they excitingly getting involved? Um, wh- where do they it's, stand with all of this? The way I see it is, the banks know that if they do nothing, they are going to be disrupted. They're going to be debanked in a lot of areas of their business. So what they are doing there, they have set up, a number of banks have set up innovation divisions, all right, that are looking at, at getting proof of concepts, getting new ideas out there. Now, the biggest challenge is that you've got the innovation divisions of the banks and then you've got those that are actually working in the banks that are going to have to work with all this technology. I mean, I was, uh, uh, I finished up part uh, chairing the last afternoon of, a, of a, a blockchain summit down in Melbourne and uh, I interviewed the innovation division of Rabobank and that was, uh, you know, it was great that they were very gracious in telling us what they were doing. And um, they were looking at, for example, a loan syndication type of structure that they had looked at, which is where at the big ticket, there might be $200 million worth of, of loans that they're putting out, and they'll, they'll split that out to a number of banks. Don't worry too much about the technical detail. Um, but what they identified were that there were 48 processes involved in, the, uh, in this loan syndication, and via the blockchain, they could reduce that down to 12. So there's a great deal of passion and enthusiasm at the innovation end. Now, I asked a question that of which I knew what the answer would be. And I asked the question, okay, you've got these proof of concepts ready to go. How long is it before these are going to be out in the real world? Um, and when, you, when you, we just saw the body language, the three people that were there, there was that sense of resigned frustration on their, on their, on their faces. Um, and they came back and said three years. So what one has... Pretty, pretty soon. Well, it's, it is soon, but... Bearing in mind one in, actually in, has... In bank, in bank years, oh, it's no, very soon. Absolutely. And, but, but this is one of the biggest challenges because the, the innovation teams are really fired up and enthusiastic. But those that have to deal with the technology have to actually... Uh, you know, they owe a duty to all their customers that they have to maintain trust, come what may, because that is the DNA of every single banking institution. If they lose any trust to their customers, they are out of business. So you've then got audit audit committees, compliance committees, you've got a whole variety of people that are going to be coming along in the middle. And with compliance being such a major issue that's front and centre in all bankers' mind, especially with the the Deutsche Bank debacle that's been happening very recently with the, the threat of a $14 billion fine, they're looking at compliance 
in every angle of their business. And so as a result, the, the enthusiasm of innovation is not met with the same enthusiasm throughout those that have got to deal with it. And that's why within the blockchain space, provenance is the issue that's going to come in way ahead of the banks, in my opinion. I'm the CEO of uh, ComBank in Australia, which is the biggest retail bank in Australia. I think it's Ian Nuriev. I think I think earlier this year he was on record saying if they don't innovate, they're going to be uh, they're going to disappear. So um, I think they're very much aware of it, right right up the food chain. It's it's already happening. I mean, in if you think specifically of the international payment space, like I was talking about transferring money. There's a, a great use case based out of Silicon Valley with a company called Goabra. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, goabra.com. Abra is the name of the business, but goabra.com, if you want to check out the website. And what these guys do, and there's a very clever bit at the end, so bear with me because uh, there's some, some interesting stuff with this. This looks at the, at the cultural narrative of a lot of expats that might be in the States, well, specifically in the States, which is where they've looked at, that might be Indonesian, Filipino, Bangladeshi, whatever it might be. Remittances and are huge it's for remit- Absolutely. Remittances yeah. are massive. And the, the cultural narrative is that a lot of expats send money back to family and extended family. So the cost, typically, uh, there's a World Bank report that came out that highlighted, so on average, about 7.8%, but it can be 10 to 15%. So if you, if you send $100, you're going to get charged $10, $15. With these GoAbra guys, it's very, very cool what they do. You, you, you get money from your traditional bank account in the States, um, for example. It then gets transferred via the Bitcoin network. It gets converted and transferred across to... Uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, that type of area. And this is where the clever bit comes up. At the other end, they have bank tellers that are actually the trusted parties in the villages and towns that actually act as the dispensers of local currency. So the idea is that instead of actually having to go via Western Union, which might go via the banking system and all these intermediaries in the middle, you've got these guys that just enable cash to go from your mobile phone in the U.S., over to the Philippines, and in theory, you could have the money there within an hour. How do you get around uh, criminal elements, though? Criminal elements are, are very, very important. I mean, um, the the regulators uh, at this moment in time are all over the place when it comes to Bitcoin in general terms. But the one thing that is non-negotiable is when you actually go into Bitcoin and you come out of Bitcoin all those parties that have that exchange have to report the transactions. So by de facto standard, the, you know, the, anti- the counter-terrorism regulators are monitoring where cash goes, you know, it comes into and comes out of Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin, pardon me, Bitcoin can be considered to be not quite anonymous, it's more pseudo-anonymous, but... But what it means is any transactions going from hard currency into Bitcoin, you can monitor who's actually uh, transacting. So they do their the KYC, Know Your Customer, and AML, which is the anti-money laundering protocol. So at each end, those are monitored. So it doesn't remove the problem of, of criminality, but it certainly makes it harder. And, of course, the, 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 the big wave of Internet of Things um you know, would uh, I, I would imagine would would dovetail neatly um, 
with the blockchain and the, the double spending problem and ensuring that uh, things don't get spent twice in ownership and give, give us some use cases of, of how the internet of things <laughs> yeah. can sort of seamlessly. Yeah. I mean, in. I guess the, I mean, if, if one links in uh, an element in the blockchain, and I don't want to get too heavily into the technicalities of it, there is a thing called smart contracts, which are essentially like a vending machine is the best way of saying it, that automate transactions. And for the first time with smart contracts, you can actually program money. And the reason why I say that when we link it into the Internet of Things is, for example, if one looks at the situation where you're importing product, let's say from China, could be the States, could be Australia, as soon as the boat hits Australian waters or American waters, there can be a GPS coordinator linked into an Internet of Things device on the container that could actually automatically say, yes, the boat is actually at this particular location, and then that instigates a smart contract to release funds automatically to the Chinese supplier, for example. Those types of things are being worked on right now in terms of ideas. Um, and certainly there is a thing called a, a, a smart lease that uh, there was, uh, um, you know, I think it's DocuSign and Visa launched in October as a proof of concept with the idea that, you, that if you buy a nice sports car, for example, um, and you make the payments on a regular basis, that's all hunky-dory. But the idea is that if you lose your job and you fall behind with, uh, with your payments, it can be the situation that the car itself has Internet of, uh, of Things devices based within it that it will be notified by a smart contract that you've not actually paid the, the cost of, the, uh, of your lease and that will then trigger a smart contract to actually disable your key. So it can be, you know, the car can be located to be, in principle at least, to be via GPS to be identified as being in your driveway, the key will be disabled. And then at the other stage, there'll be a repro, you know, a, a repro agent that will actually have a key that they can automatically come and pick the car up. It'll be like those uh, smart trolleys where that you take too far away from. Yeah, it's from, from yeah. the supermarket. It's it's those it's those types of things that are that are that are slowly beginning to be seen. What I find interesting is on a philosophical level. I mean, our, our entire society is based on trust. You know, if you yes. if you break it down, there is there is so much. Um, inherent and implicit and unspoken trust um, and and there are all these institutions that have evolved to to deal with the rough edges I mean I sold a business earlier this year and the issue of settlement was a very complex real issue that yes. I could see um, you know at what point do you hand over the keys to the business at what point do they send the money it's a, it's actually it's, it, the stakes are pretty high and it does require a lot of trust and it's a problem that hasn't been neatly solved at all yet. I think um, we're still actually going to need, we're still going to need to see trust, unfortunately. I mean, in this, uh, in the book, I mean, I sort of talk about the idea of smart contracts with the vending machines and that type of thing. And I've got a whole segment on why smart contracts aren't actually smart. And it's the idea that you know, smart contracts could disrupt lawyers, but they won't disrupt smart lawyers. Because in the event that there's a dispute, for example, you know, you're going to need to have intermediaries get involved. For example, I mean, the, the often used case is the vending machine. I'll go back to that just to sort of give a bit of 
uh, narrative to where smart contracts come in. If you actually buy a product out of a vending machine, you put your money in, you get your product out, and there's nobody involved in the middle. That's what a smart contract essentially is. But then if you look at the issue, what happens if the product's out of date? What happens if the, the machine chews up your money? What happens if? So you have all these particular scenarios. And so what we will actually see is there will still be a need for, uh, for lawyers to be, to be around. But I think ah, their damn, role will change. I know, I, I know. I, I was hoping. I know, I know. I, I, I mean, I, I mean I'd, I'd love to be able to say that lawyers wouldn't be around or auditors or accountants, but the reality is we're human beings. And there's, there's, there's even a term that, they, that the, tech, the tech community has where it's called dry code and wet code. And dry code is, is the code that machines can read and wet code is the code that lawyers can uh, is the code that human beings read. So, for example, in this nirvana of computers making all the decision for us where code is law, when it comes to consumer-based material, if, you've got a, if you go to a court of law and the judge says, okay, what's the documentation for this? Oh, it's a smart contract, here's the machine code. The judge is going to say, well, how can you expect anybody in the street to actually understand what the hell's going on? Mm. So there will always be a need for this wet code, as it's called, in terms of here's the human interpretation you know, so lawyers, I think lawyers will be disrupted, but not the smart ones. So if someone's interested in the blockchain, um, where, what are some good online resources, meetups? It seems like it's quite a, it's not the, it's not the most easily accessible technology slash community to get involved with for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, worldwide, the, the blockchain community is getting bigger. And certainly Meetup has got a number of, uh, of blockchain-based uh, groups. Uh, and also they have uh, what is known as, uh, yeah, as Bitcoin groups, also Ethereum groups, which is the next, uh, the next big uh, cryptocurrency coin. So certainly if you go to those events, a number will be more user-friendly than others. I think YouTube is a great combination uh, I mean I've got a couple of you know, introductory videos that uh, that talk about you know blockchain from a fr fundamentally a non-technical perspective and that was the whole reason behind writing the book is to get it out there in terms of here's something that's easy to digest so down the rabbit hole is all about making it easy to access I, I can't wait to read a copy I've been waiting for a book like that for a while I know well, well see this is this is the issue because I mean when I've I, again I, I go back to December last year when I asked people at a blockchain networking event and these were the smartest guys in the room I met more PhDs in those events than I have ever met in my entire life. I've also met the highest level of social awkwardness I've met in my entire life and the inability to communicate in, in my entire life. And I'm, and I'm not being disparaging, there are some fantastic brains there, but in terms of communicating the ideas in a succinct way, it was a real challenge. And so I said, you know what, even though it's gonna take me a hell of a long time to do this, I'm actually gonna get a book out there that just summarizes this in an easy to read format. And, and that's why I've written Down the Rabbit Hole. And Down the Rabbit Hole, by the way, comes from Alice in Wonderland because when she followed the white rabbit, she went deep, deep down and she discovered this wonderland of just unbelievable surrealism. And that's no different to the blockchain. Once you get down there, there's so much that's happening. And it's an incredible opportunity for anybody that's got any hint of entrepreneurialism in their blood. 
Are there any listed companies in the US? And bear in mind, we're not giving any financial advice, but are there any interesting uh, listed companies in the US um, that are building interesting businesses around blockchain technology that if someone likes dabbling in the stock market, they can have a look at? Oh, <laughs> uh, absolutely what you said in terms of uh, you know, investment advice absolutely is, uh, is is not the name of the game. I mean, I mean, there are lots of companies that are geared towards uh, being publicly listed. I mean, the ones to look out for in the press. Let's let's look at those because um, I, I, I really don't want to sort of talk about investment advice quite rightly, as you said. Um, but digital asset holdings are one to very much look out for, based out of New York. They are looking at driving. The number of days it takes to to get an equity transaction from one person to another, they're trying to get that down from two days to instant yeah to the instantaneous um, time frame. So, for example, uh, you know, here in Australia, the ASX, the uh, Australian Stock Exchange, they actually uh, took a fifteen million dollar stake for uh, I believe it was about f- just five percent equity. Nice valuation. Very nice valuation. <laughs> um, but it's the idea that they want to, to, to change the Australian stock exchange from waiting two days to get your money from when you actually uh, sell an equity to making it instantaneous. And that just gets rid of so many back office um, teams and institutions in the background. It frees up so much additional cash within the actual, the, the whole, uh, um, you know, the whole sort of digital exchange, yeah, the whole um, stock exchanges worldwide. Um, I mean, that's just mind-blowing. It's the potential, the potential of that particular side. So definitely digital asset holdings are worth watching. Um, Ripple also are really worth watching. They've, they've, just, they've just secured a, um, forgive me the exact number, I think it was $55 million they just secured a Series B round funding. But they're working closely with a consortia of, of banks, and they've developed their own sort of blockchain-style of uh, payments protocol, uh, these guys are you know, very, very much worth you know worth sort of having a look at. I mean, I mean the blockchain worldwide is not that big right now. It's it's got a lot of froth and it's got a lot of bubble. I mean, there's no major, major sort of listed companies that I'm aware of anyway. Certainly right now that um, have actively got involved. But if you just look at the the big names that are getting behind this, I mean, IBM only 10 days ago announced that they were putting $200 million into IoT and blockchain and looking towards you know um, sourcing 1,000 blockchain people out in their Berlin offices. And if you look in China, for example, Wang Zhang, I, I'm, I'm sure I've got that pronunciation wrong, but uh, the largest car park manufacturer in China, they've just announced a $30 billion fund over seven years for China, smart chi- cities. China operates at a little bit of a different oh, um, it's, baseline I mean, level. I was over in Shanghai about a month ago, and what's going on there is just unbelievable. Yeah. The amount of money that is there. And we were hearing rumors um, that the Chinese government is prepared to commit $500 billion to converting China from a manufacturing economy to an information economy. It's a smart move. And they don't they don't lose many battles. Okay. They're very, very shrewd. It's, it's, it's a smart move. Oh, the, the opportunities are just immense in this space. I can uh, it's, I can sense your enthusiasm, Tim. <laughs> so I, I'm a bit of an evangelist. I mean, I apologize for that. But, you know, it's, 
it's I mean I, I saw the internet in 1995 and got involved and set up an internet cafe bar and restaurant and a web design house which we sold in 2001 and where I see the blockchain is where I see the internet way way back in 95 except this is going to be even bigger I was a Twitter evangelist in 2010 and unfortunately that share price is letting me down oh no but um, yeah no it's an interesting industry I think um, you know as I mentioned a lot of it uh, real heavyweights, people like Mark Andreessen, who just basically said this is where the future is going to be. So um, we look forward to your book on November the 17th, Down the Rabbit Hole. Um, we've been speaking to Tim Lee, the CEO and founder of Veridictum. We'll put uh, all the details in the show notes. Also a blockchain evangelist. Um, Tim, we really appreciate your time. It shed a lot of light. Um, we would uh, like to follow up um, with developments in the blockchain, maybe maybe in six months to a yeah, year. Yeah, very we'll happy where, to do so. I mean, everything's it's, at. it's moving so, so quickly. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to, to stay in touch with everything. It's moving so quickly. But very happy to, and thanks for the uh, thanks for the invite. Appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. Kate, I think your knowledge of the blockchain has um, at least doubled or tripled in the last few days. <laughs> yes, in the last 24 hours, I've gone from nothing to elementary. I uh, I said to Kate, look, we, we, we're going to have a bit of a post-interview analysis about blockchain, so just do a, a little bit of reading. And it's not the, it's not the, it's not the most well-defined, um, simplistic topic in the world. Let's put no. it that way. No, and there's not, not a great amount of resources to learn either. There's a few good videos, um, but a lot of the articles as well, they're just they're quite complicated to understand. Tim's video was really fantastic yes. um, that he put up there and that really explains it really nicely. I also tweeted out yesterday when I was doing research for the article, a couple of one medium posts explaining blockchain for beginners. I mean, I mean, what I find interesting is, you know, our whole society, the whole Western society, and I guess, I guess human society and even animal societies in general, but um, not animal societies, but the animal world, there, there's... There's a level of trust. I mean, you know, you go out onto the street, you expect people to behave a certain way, you expect cars to behave a certain way. Um, our world is so much about trust. And what's interesting on a philosophical level about the blockchain is that here is a, um, a, a platform um, that is actually all about trust. So for a society where trust is such a big part of, of what holds it together, we finally have a technology that can work with us on the trust level. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that up until now, um, you, you know, trust is essentially either from law, which um, still requires trust. If there's a revolution, the law means nothing, mm. you know. So it's interesting that trust has devolved right down now to a technology. So it will really be interesting to, to see how this, how this all plays out. Mm. I'd be interested to see where the role of the, the central body changes. Well, in this case, the banks, for example, you know, where, they, where they're going to go in the end. 
Look, I mean, I think if you even look at, and it's not entirely the same thing, but in the old days, universities were the gatekeepers of all knowledge. Mm. If you wanted to learn, you had to go to a university. They were the ones that had the libraries. They were the ones that had the teachers. And you really had no choice. Mm. Um, today, it's distributed. And that's why I like one of the definitions of the blockchain. It's a distributed system of trust because that 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 key word distribution means no one's the gatekeeper of it anymore which is very very powerful which is which is the whole one of the many aspects of the internet that is so powerful is that things are distributed yeah you know, and the internet can't even go down because it is distributed parts of it can go down so the mm-hmm. fact that trust is now distributed and maybe even courts of law won't be the the only adjudicators and banks won't be the only um, gatekeepers of trust so mm-hmm. I, I, I do think it can be as um, as as fundamentally important um, to the change of our future as some people are making it out to be mm. at some point though I feel that there will need to be a governing body not necessarily like if we take the example of Bitcoin not necessarily taking fees but in in solving disputes between stolen goods for example yes Yes, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, cryptocurrency doesn't magically solve all the issues and there's there's huge issues there with, um, you know, the criminals being able to obfuscate and things like that. But um, the, the the blockchain as that platform of trust and, and, and a more efficient clearinghouse mm-hmm. um, certainly seems interesting. I'm also still getting my head around it, though, because as... You know, as you know, once you start scratching the technology, it starts getting really complicated quite yeah. quickly. Well, he got the name of his book right. It's very much a rabbit hole. Down the rabbit hole. And I'd be interested to sort of go to some of the meetups in Sydney or if you're listening and you um, have any great resources uh, or even a product, I'm interested really to see this blockchain in action. That's what I really want yeah, to see. Yeah, who's using it? Who's using it, how they're using it, you know, what problems, what real life problems are you solving you mm. know and and i'd be very very interested to um to to see that i will check out some of the companies that that he mentioned um anyway that's episode 65 done um we'll be back in two weeks or so with another podcast please please feel free to send your shout outs to podcast at monkey.com you're welcome to tell us a little bit about your company or your product or your startup or um, anything you'd like to mention we'd love to hear from our listeners um, we, we have well in the thousands of listeners uh, of this podcast, which is fantastic. I really enjoy doing this podcast. Um, I think Kate will, will get to that level of enjoyment mm. soon. It's growing on me. <laughs> and um, thank you for listening. And we will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Um, this has been uh, Kevin Garber together with co-host Kate Frappel. Thank you very much.